Want to start today with an annotation by Patrice Greenville. This is from opednews.com. What liberals need to understand response to Jimmy Dore. This is an annotation of the YouTube episode by the Finnish Bolshevik. I'll begin with the introduction to this YouTube clip because it serves as a great introduction to the story. Hello comrades, it's the Finnish Bolshevik. This video is mainly directed towards liberals because I believe that a lot of liberals generally have good intentions. They want the right things. They want to help the working class. They want to help the poor. And we have seen a shift towards the left among liberals in the recent years. So he's saying that shit libs have good intentions, whereas I've given up on them completely. My main objection to coddling shit libs is that it ends up always with lesser evil voting. But let's hear a little more of what this guy has to say, the Finnish Bolshevik. Liberals are looking for alternatives, but we have seen them uh, go for Bernie Sanders and now Ocasio-Cortez. So they are trying to find alternatives to the typical corporate Democrats but I think they are just misguided. They have some fundamental flaws in their thinking. If any of us are willing to get sheepdogged by Bernie Sanders or AOC or anyone else on the supposed left, we have serious flaws in our thinking. All dreams die in the Democratic Party. Back to the Finnish Bolshevik. Now, Jimmy Dore is basically my favorite liberal. He's the only liberal that I really tolerate consistently. And I'm sure we have all basically witnessed his uh, further and further shift towards the left. He used to support whatever the Young Turks were doing years ago, then he jumped on the whole Bernie bandwagon, then he became critical of Bernie, now he's even being critical of Ocasio-Cortez, and he has left the Young Turks. And in a rather strange turn of events, even though Jimmy is like much older than these other progressive voices on the internet, he's the most left of all of them. So even though he's a more old-school liberal, he's still the only one who is really economically left. And that has pretty much caused him to be kind of separated from all these other liberals. Yeah, Jimmy Dore is about my age, and what we're seeing is that some of the old-school liberals are not liberals anymore. If you've come to the conclusion that all dreams die in the Democratic Party, you're no longer a liberal. Congratulations. So back to Patrice Greenville. In this episode, the Finnish Bolshevik provides an excellent overview of the liberal mentality, its good points and bad points. Essentially, its dangerous limitations grounded in bourgeois delusions, opportunism, and plain political cowardice, all of which make most liberals de facto collaborators with the imperialist status quo. He also notes Jimmy Dore's brave struggle against the synthetic left and his own evolution toward more radical positions consistent with genuine socialism. Personally, I find his critique of liberals and their mythologies refreshing in an ideological field deliberately brimming with confusion to the point of incoherence. If you followed my last couple of episodes, you've seen this incoherence. You see communists who should know better than to suck up to shitlibs. That's one big form of incoherence. The Finnish Bolsheviks' dismantlement of the notion that America has devolved into the oligarchic tyranny we witness today, rather than it having been an oligarchic tyranny all along, ding, 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 the inevitable outcome of the natural dynamics of a capitalist order is especially welcome. I have been agreeing with that assessment practically all my adult life. 
1996, I wrote an essay on the disgusting performance of the American media, pointing out that those who spoke wistfully about Cronkite and Murrow as some sort of golden age of mainstream U.S. journalism were simply fooling themselves and anyone who believed them. My argument was simply that if the press and media in general had really functioned as its liberal apologists adduce, telling it like it is without fear or favor, as the New York Times self-flattering motto proclaims, and supplying the U.S. population 24-7 with reliable flows of information free from the constant anti-communist, pro-oligarchy, and pro-imperialist lies and omissions that poison all their product, then the history of the world for the last 75 years would be unrecognizable. In sum, my theorem argues that with a mass media committed to aggressively and proactively serving the people, not the corporate oligarchs, and thereby with a population armed with a far better and more sophisticated understanding of world history and social processes, the following things and events would not exist or would have never happened, as an enlightened American public would have never permitted it. We would be facing a completely different reality. Maybe not full-fledged socialism yet, but moving towards it and the world would be a cooperative world mostly at peace. Note, my arbitrary catalog starts with the close of World War II in 1945. The events, entities, and processes mentioned below are but a small sampler of what has gone wrong, usually listing just the most emblematic items in each category. The Cold War and ensuing encirclement of Soviet Union, China, etc. The Demopublican duopoly. The rise of the oligarchic cacistocracy rise of U.S. imperial hegemony and neocon defense of world supremacy by any means necessary, rise of military Keynesianism and the permanent war state, the CIA plus alphabet soup of similar national security agencies, overthrow of Iran's prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, installation of Shah dictatorship in 1953, interventions in Central America, overthrow of President Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala, 1954, El Salvador, 1970s and 80s, Nicaragua, 1970s to date, interventions in other parts of Latin America, overthrow of Chile's socialist President Allende, 1973, support for Argentine Junta Dirty War, 1970s, support for Brazil dictatorship, hybrid war against Venezuela and Cuba, support for Colombia's brutal oligarchy, etc. The Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, twice, intervention in Syria, ongoing, intervention in Libya, Kolor Revolt, Putsch in Ukraine, ongoing, Cuban blockade, Cuban Missile Crisis, overthrow of Indonesian leader Suharto, 1965, bloodiest coup in modern history, Inequality deepens throughout the world, rise of the new trillionaires, with the United States United Kingdom ruling elites tied to oil regime, fossil fuels precipitate climate change crisis, and mass capitalogenic species die-offs. Digital revolution and computer advances trigger incurable, massive unemployment and a crisis of overproduction, ushering the fourth industrial revolution and the Great Reset, Second Cold War focused mainly on Russia, China, and Iran. Many of these crimes and calamities materialized during presidential regimes usually depicted as patriotic or exemplary by the U.S. exceptionalist imperialist canon. 
Truman initiated the Cold War, created the CIA, dropped A-bombs on Japan to deter the Soviets from presumptive aggression, launched the Korean War, and served notice to leftists at home that the U.S. would now be tacking hard right. It did. Early post-war meddling in Iran and Central America, for example, as well as Cuba and Vietnam, took place under the popular Eisenhower regime, who thereby confirmed the country's openly imperialist course. Obviously, a much better informed U.S. public would not have ever elected a Bush, a Clinton, or a Trump. Or even an Obama, a proficient demagogue chosen by the ruling elites to repair the damage done to America's image in governing circles' legitimacy by the clumsily oligarchic Bush too. In this context, the whole farce of identity politics would not have existed in the absence of a reigning duopoly shilling for a virtually unchallenged capitalist regime. It's clear that historically, truth is on the left and capitalism, or as some aptly call it, neo-feudalism, requires the big lie to remain alive. And the big lie is not a new phenomenon in America, but actually the norm. Now, I don't want to steal any thunder from the Finnish Bolsheviks, so I'll let you click on this video yourselves. This is not an episode of the Jimmy Dore Show, it's an episode of the Finnish Bolshevik. And now we turn to an article by David Corton, Capitalism versus Socialism is a False Choice. This is from YesMagazine.org. Economic power is, and always has been, the foundation of political power. Those who control the people's means of living rule. In a democracy, however, each person must have a voice in the control and management of the means of their living. That requires more than a vote expressing a preference for which establishment vetted candidate will be in power for the next few years. My previous column, Confronting the Great American Myth, distinguished true democracy from government by the wealthy, a plutocracy. Contrary to popular belief, the U.S. Constitution was written by representatives of the new nation's wealthy class to keep people like themselves in power. On January 4th, the newly elected Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives introduced House Resolution 1, the For the People Act of 2019. Its aim is to make voting easier, reduce the influence of big money, and curtail gerrymandering. Even before it was introduced, the champions of having rich people rule were falsely characterizing it as an attack on the freedom of speech of ordinary Americans. The provisions of House Resolution 1 represent an important step in a transition from the plutocracy we have to the democracy most Americans want. Unfortunately, political gridlock assures that H.R. 1 has no chance of becoming law until at least after the 2020 election. Yet the popular yearning for democracy reflected in that bill makes this a propitious moment for a serious conversation about what a true democracy might look like and why it would be a good idea. We stand at an epic choice point for our nation and for humanity. The plutocracy now in place has put us on a path to self-extinction, a future with no winners, rich or poor. We must now seek a path that restores the health of Earth's regenerative systems while securing equity, material sufficiency, peace, and spiritual abundance for all, exactly the opposite of the plutocrats' drive to secure the power, privilege, and material excess for themselves. This makes democracy far more than just a good idea, it is now an imperative. The power of plutocracy depends on keeping the people divided against each other along gender, racial, religious, or other fault lines. The goal is to divert our attention from themselves so that they can maintain their power and continue to amass wealth. 
Champions of plutocracy would also have us believe that we must choose between two options, capitalism, private ownership and management, or socialism, government ownership and management. They prefer we not notice that in their most familiar forms, both capitalism and socialism feature an undemocratic concentration of control over the means of living in the hands of the few. Democracy is essential for either to work effectively for the benefit of all. Plutocrats generally favor capitalism because in the extreme form we now experience, it supports virtually unlimited concentrations of wealth and power. Its practitioners are also drawn by capitalism's ideological claim that unregulated markets will assure that the presumed benefits of a growing economy will be shared by everyone, and so the rich need not bear any personal responsibility beyond maximizing their personal financial gain. The critical economic and political question for humanity is not whether our means of living will be controlled by corporations or government, but whether control will be concentrated for the benefit of the few or dispersed with benefits shared by everyone. Support for the needed economic transition can come from many places. Just as people are not necessarily racist because they are white or misogynistic because they are male, people do not necessarily become plutocrats just because they are rich. Many wealthy people work actively for economic and political democracy and support radical wealth redistribution, including through support of progressive taxation and significant taxing of inherited wealth. The political and economic democracy we seek cannot be easily characterized as either capitalist or socialist. It is a system of substantially self-reliant local economies composed of locally owned enterprises and community-secured safety nets with responsibilities shared by families, charities, and governments. Such a system facilitates self-organizing to create healthy, happy, and productive communities. In our complex and interconnected world, this system will require national and global institutions responsive to the people's will and well-being to support cooperation and sharing among communities, but the real power will be dispersed locally. There would be ample room for competition among local communities to be the most beautiful, healthy, democratic, creative, and generous. There is no place for colonizing the resources of others or for predatory corporations. These communities will most likely feature cooperative and family ownership of businesses. They will also recognize the rights of nature and their shared responsibility to care for the commons and to share its gifts. The rules of plutocracy evolved over thousands of years. We have far less time to come up with suitable rules for democratic alternatives. That search must quickly become a centerpiece of public discussion. So when people start screaming, socialist, 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 you can scream back, no, democracy, democracy, democracy. And I would scream along with that, populism, populism, populism. Maybe our new party should be called the Democratic Populists. You heard it here first. I don't know about you, but I really would love to live in a world where there was no place for colonizing the resources of others or for predatory corporations. I guess the real point is that it doesn't matter who owns everything as long as everyone has a say in how everything is done. Although he mentioned wealthy, benevolent people, I'm not sure that we need any wealthy people. And I certainly believe we need to enforce our antitrust laws. We need to break up the big banks, the big monopolies. We need to make sure that mom and pop businesses are the priority. I don't really care if it happens under communism, socialism, or capitalism, but democracy is going to be a big deal.
So if we do have a revolution, let's revolt in the name of democratic populism, and let's see how far that takes us. I think it'll go a lot farther than the communist guy yesterday who was sucking up to shit libs. I believe we need to make a political base of the real workers in this country, the kind of people that Jimmy Stewart's character would have championed in the movie It's a Wonderful Life. If we want to make America great, that's the way to do it. We need to stop preying on other countries and we need to develop an economic system that not only helps us, but makes it possible for everyone else in the world to thrive as well. I'll conclude by expressing how much I enjoy reading the comments under these videos. I hope you'll keep them coming and I'll see you tomorrow.